Thank you, Paul. And uh, thank you, Dr. Bruce, for also a wonderful and very practical and informative talk. So we are going to go directly into our panel discussion and finish off the, uh, the day with an expert panel. We will use some of the questions that are left over from the Q&A and build on those in our panel discussion. I'd like to introduce two additional members of the panel in addition to the speakers we've had uh, today. The first is Dr. Susan Swindles, who is a professor of medicine from University of Nebraska, and Dr. Monica Gandhi from University of California, San Francisco. I'm sure most of you recognize them and know of their wonderful accomplishments. I won't go into great detail to review those for you, but uh, they are both very uh, experienced practitioners in HIV medicine and highly regarded investigators in many of the aspects of what we've talked about today related to HIV. So, Let's go right into the panel discussion. We've got a number of things to discuss that are left over from this morning and the day's discussions from our presenters. And I'm going to start off with a few of those, but also touch on some concepts that I want all of the panel members to discuss. And I think the first of those has to do with... um, maybe a very broad question that can apply to many of the topics that were discussed today and include uh, expertise of our panelists. So what tools do we have besides antiretroviral therapy and our people living with HIV to reduce inflammation? A lot of us have been involved in studies of anti-inflammatory interventions. Um, Dr. Valcour mentioned statins as did Dr. Feinstein, but Uh, let's go with that broad question and hear from our panelists. What are you using to try and bring inflammation under better control in your clinical practice? So maybe we can start with Dr. Gandhi and Dr. Swindle, since you've just joined us. I would say that I am waiting for the review trial. I don't, I don't think that we know um, yet about the low dose, uh, rosuvastatin and, uh, sorry, the other one. Um, (laughs) and, um, I, I am waiting for that because, um, clearly, uh, uh, there was a lot of movement by all of us to put on aspirin and statins sort of prophylactically without good data on that. And then, Aspirin became, um, you know, concerned with risk of bleeding in older patients. Statins became risk of diabetes. And so uh, that combination means I think we need the data, we need the RCT. And uh, so Victor and Matt, you both have been heavily involved in looking at the effects of anti-inflammatory agents on your respective organ systems. What are your thoughts on this question? And maybe Doug Bruce, too, in terms of uh, the role in pain control. Yeah, I was going to get to that. So. Okay. <laughs> I said we haven't coordinated this. <laughs> so, Victor, how about you go first? Yeah, I, I, I know that there have been some smaller studies, and I think probably ACTG has done some as well. I'm not as familiar with them, and certainly in my practice, it's not something that I prescribe. I haven't seen larger studies. 
there's been quite a bit of work done in the non-HIV field around anti-inflammatories and, and Alzheimer's disease. Um, and most of the time it's similar to what you're saying, very small, if any, effect size and high risk. Um, at one point there was a study of um, a prednisone, you know, and there have also been non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And so these aren't without risk in older populations. I'll say kind of anecdotally and maybe just slightly more than anecdotally. I've had patients tell me they're, when they get treated for H. pylori, they feel better. And that doesn't necessarily surprise me because I wonder about gut trans, uh, micro, what is the word? Uh, translocation. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, cause we have very, uh, very little immunologic barriers, you know, within the first month of HIV infection. So there's a higher risk for microbial translocation. And there have been some small studies that show higher soluble CD14 uh, correlating to, co- to cognition. So you have to wonder if there might be a, you know, a gut um, a- approach to this. Um, we, we, I've talked with one of my colleagues, Lish Medlovo, who's now at Cornell, about whether we should be testing this and looking at it more. We've done a little bit of work in Africa around this and, and find signal in both HIV positive and HIV uninfected people, which is also not surprising given some of the parasitic burdens that exist in some of those populations. So I think that's the most intriguing thing for me right now is whether we should be thinking about that. Yeah. And I, to, to, uh, I, I would tend to echo the, the overall concepts that you're, that you're starting to, I think, enumerate there, Victor, in the sense that I think the further upstream we go to the source of this, uh, you know, when we talk about inflammation, we often talk about it in a pretty nonspecific way. But but to actually look at the sources, I think that gives us a much better chance of getting these substantial effect sizes where, the you know, the, the positive signal is going to outweigh the negative noise, right? So, and I agree, Monica, I agree with you, too, in terms of the statin, the statin uh, question. The, um, you know, statins are not the most potent anti-inflammatory agents, but you know, they're, they're, they seem to be pretty well tolerated. I think there's, I think there's a good chance they would help. I don't think they're going to be the, the anti-inflammatory hammer. And I think a lot of it is, I mean, this is, I guess, kind of obvious, but I think our best anti-inflammatory agent is early, early therapy, people not dropping their CD4s, having, not having persistently elevated viral loads. Um, just as a quick, just because it's, there's a lot of um, there have been a lot of recent trials in the cardiovascular space about anti-inflammatory agents. So maybe I, I can just go over kind of my take on these really briefly because it, it it might be of interest. There's a the Cantos trial, which was canakinumab, an IL-1 beta antagonist. Um, with, you know, I think the results in terms of the trial and the real world sort of highlight some of the some of the potential issues with relatively broad anti-inflammatory therapies. It does target IL-1 beta. So in that sense, it's not prednisone. It's not, it's, you know, it's not something along those lines. It was a positive trial, meaning it, it resulted in about a 15% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular events in a kind of a, a pro-inflammatory uh, population with cardiovascular disease. But, uh, and it's actually, it's off-target effects where it, it had a trend towards a, a potential benefit in terms of um, reducing heart failure risk as well as potentially cancer risk. Um, there weren't a ton of problematic infections, but but there were somewhat more infections in the treatment arm. But it's super expensive, and the effect size in absolute terms is really small. 
So despite being a positive trial, the FDA, I think, in, in my opinion, appropriately, did not approve it for a cardiovascular indication. And, and so I think that's that really highlights. And then we've had other trials. We had a negative trial of methotrexate for um, lo- looking at cardiovascular endpoints. There have been a couple of positive trials of colchicine um, in people with cardiovascular disease, which is interesting. The GI side effects have been potentially problematic. The mechanism is it's thought to be a microtubule inhibitor, so it's almost like chemo level stuff. But but that, that's that's a really long way of saying my take on the anti-inflammatory space for cardiovascular disease right now is either if it's something that's really targeting a cause upstream of 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 the more inflammation, in which case for HIV in general, it's early therapy. Um, I think that's likely to be effective. Or I think if it's kind of like secondary prevention, so immediately after a cardiovascular event, let's say post MI or post initial heart failure, when you have that vulnerable period um, where your, you know, your anti-inflammatory signal and the benefit of starting that drug might outweigh the side effects of the noise. That's where I could realistically see it going rather than at least at this point, a broad anti-inflammatory, because I think there's just too much noise there. Okay, I think those were both great questions. I think we got to make them a little shorter answers so we can get to everything. Um, Paul, you want to take the next one? Uh, sure. So um, let me, um, this is a very specific one, uh, but uh, I think important. Uh, if you don't have, if, you're, if your clinic doesn't have access to uh, really good HIV uh, oriented psych services. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, antidepressants that you uh, do once you start, um, uh, once you've done a screening. Uh, comment on, on, on that. I think um, I could go to Steve, perhaps, or. And maybe we can ask Charlie to weigh in on that question. Oh, and, uh, actually, let me let me start with Sue uh, Susan Swindles. Uh, Would like to get her in on this. Do you, do you want to t- uh, start tackle- tackling that? So, what's your favorite antidepressant? If you don't have a lot of access to psych services, what yes, yes, I have a very short list because I I already know like a couple that don't have very many. Um, drug interactions and that, you know, maybe I can remember the dose of. And so I (laughs) think we're, a lot of us are in that position. (laughs) So, you know, my, my expertise here is uh, pretty limited. I'll, I'll often, um, uh, you know, offer that to a patient and give it a few weeks and see if it does make them feel better. It doesn't always, you know, a lot of times People just have sad lives, especially now. It's been such an awful year that, you know, I don't think any amount of SSRI can fix all of it. But um, we're fortunate that we do have access to psych services, but oftentimes people have to wait a really long time too, which is uh, by no means ideal. You know, you refer someone and they get an appointment for sort of 10 weeks later. Well, what's the point of that? But they're they're also... Um, incredibly busy. So, yeah, I think it probably behooves us all to just get familiar with one or two and get comfortable with it. And uh, personally, I don't feel that competent to to get much more complicated than yeah. that. Charlie, do you have a recommendation? 
Well, so several sort of general comments. Comment number one is um, how do you know when someone with depression actually needs an antidepressant? Uh, and I think you need to be very careful about distinguishing uh, reactive depression from um, uh, organic depression or, or psychotic depression. So, so that, that's kind of a general medicine comment. Um, the irony is that organic depression is easier to treat than other forms of depression and should respond to effective antidepressant therapy. What I have found is that although the newer antidepressants may be more effective uh, and, and they had different side effect profiles, um, third-party payers may be reluctant to pay for them. So you're going to be stuck with who's the third-party payer and what are they willing to let you prescribe, and you may be stuck with an earlier-generation generic Prozac or something like that, which, by the way, can be quite effective. Uh, they just have a different different side effect profile. And, and then the other pharmacologic principle is always give the antidepressant enough time to act. It can be four to six weeks before you really begin to see benefit from an antidepressant. Certainly, you can see significant effects within two to three weeks. Often what you see in someone who's organically depressed is they start to complain because they finally have enough energy to complain. They tell you, oh, I'm really not feeling better. Oh, you know, I still don't want to eat anything. What would you have from last night? Well, you know, I had a I had a T-bone steak and then some rice, but it, I really didn't want to eat that badly. So, you know, when they when they start to feel well enough to complain, you know, the antidepressant is working. The, the other sort of general comment is I'm increasingly impressed by the impact of, of effective antidepressants on temporarily increasing suicide risk particularly in younger patients. So be very careful about starting antidepressants in teenagers and young adults, because one of the things antidepressants do is they give you enough energy to carry out the things you didn't previously have enough energy to do. And and so um, if you're going to start antidepressants in a teenager or young adult, make sure they're in a setting where they're going to be watched all the time, like even at night. Don't give them the option to go into the closet and hang themselves because that is a tragic outcome of effective antidepressant therapy. And we see this all the time. Okay, you're really upbeat today, Charlie. Thanks. You got to be realistic for people who don't have access to psychiatric <laughs> services. This is what yeah. the psychiatrist no, one other thing that can be, be helpful though also is the PHQ-9 is validated for repeat measure. And so if you, if you don't have a psychiatrist or a therapist who's monitoring this, right? Charlie's point's important. Don't repeat the PHQ-9 a week after you started the antidepressant, right? But you should be rechecking it. That's going to be another way to validate that this treatment's getting better. And is something, actually there have been studies in Africa that just use the PHQ-9 as instructions on how to taper up uh, the antidepressant. Yeah. Yeah. Get the final word on this question because we're going to go on to another one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think our group has some kind of basic knowledge of using common things like sertraline or fluoxetine or bupropion or things like that. But, but because we have integrated mental health services, we, we often still have kind of curbside consultations with them. And, And we've also, in a couple instances, programs in our state that do not have mental health services, we've been able to provide telehealth consultation for them. And so I I feel like people that probably have a significant 
population of people with HIV ought to be able to negotiate some type of relationship like that where they can actually get uh, mental health advice. And we've learned during Zoom that uh, in the in the uh, epidemic that telehealth is actually pretty good for mental health care. The only thing I want to add is the long-acting antidepressants and antipsychotics and how interesting that is put together with long-acting antiretrovirals. So we have a pilot going on here about um, people with psychotic depression and injectable antiretrovirals and putting paliperidone with our cabotidoribopivirine. So it's going to be interesting that we now have these options. Triple combo. Yeah. Yeah. Connie? You okay. Know. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Paul. No, I was going to invite you. Okay. There. So there have been a couple of questions sprinkled throughout all of your talks. And I, I will say I've been struck about how much each of your topics um, crosses over with others that we've had speaking today. So a lot of these questions can be things that spill over into your various topics. So one of these is, the impact of dual antiretroviral therapy versus triple antiretroviral therapy on some of the things you've all talked about, in particular, frailty for Christine and neurocognitive deficits for Victor. And are there things that we need to pay attention to in terms of the specific antiretroviral therapies? I I did get a, I saw one question in the chat and, um, I, I've had a couple, <laughs> I've had a couple patients who say to me, I, I've been taking my antiretrovirals like this for a long time. I've never had any problems. And they're telling me they take them like Monday through Friday or they, they'll skip every other day. And they, and they say, you know, actually I had one patient who took it for two weeks and I didn't take it for two weeks and told me that he's always uh, virally suppressed. And I had to ask, you know, when do you test whether you're suppressed or not? Those all bother me because um, I, I don't think we're having a constant pressure on managing the virus and it could be causing more inflammation. The, the people that come in on dual therapy versus triple therapy, I, I'm less, I, I just think about it, but I've never really made a recommendation one way or the other because in those cases, I've seen CD4 cell counts are high, viral loads are suppressed. You can look in the chart and see that they have been. And I don't know if there's good data. There may be others um, on this call that know better. I, Scott Latander probably knows this better than anyone else. But I, I'm not sure there's data that should, in the setting of clearly virally suppressed, suppressive uh, antiretrovirals, that two is going to make a difference than three if you're clearly viral suppressed. So maybe somebody else can answer, but that, that's been my experience. And I can just about, add one thing to that, which is the 5353 trial did look at dolotegravir-3TC uh, alone to just check if it was um, in some way there were increased reservoir measurements with the dual therapy versus triple therapy. And right, no evidence of um, like HIV DNA levels being up or, or poor men markers of reservoir measurements. So I don't think... I think that that was my most reassuring look that we don't, we, we may not have ongoing deep replication with the dual therapy in 5353. Well, it integrates almost. How about Christine? Any thoughts on uh, incidence or outcomes or progression of frailty? Any relationship yeah, to We haven't seen, and we haven't seen any studies looking specifically at two drug versus three drug for frail individuals. Although in general, one of the big components uh, or one of the big um, risk factors for progression of frailty is polypharmacy. 
And so I think in general, the more medications we can decrease if we still have the same efficacy um, would presumably have better outcomes. So, Connie, this is Sue. If I could just pitch sure. in. I've been thinking more about uh, two-drug therapy. I'm still a bit nervous about it initially, but, you know, uh, for people who are doing well, uh, like Monica says, the, the data is uh, all over, pretty reassuring. And so um, for uh, uh, just sort of anecdotally, a few patients that are on in the back of their containing regimen, mostly because they've got some real disease, you know, you can take them off that, leave them on dolutegravir 3TC, and they live happily ever after. And maybe this is helpful for their cardiovascular risk. And I would like Matt to tell us all once and for all, you know, how much does it matter about the back of ear? Do we need to stop it? Do we need to avoid it? What is the answer? This question will not go away. No. Oh, I, um, <laughs> so I guess to, to give a short answer, the short yeah. answer is somewhere between I don't know and if there's an, an alternative that will work reasonably well, just do it. I mean, I, I think at this point there's enough, there there have been enough studies on a back of ear that are, either neutral to suggesting some degree of harm. And again, the absolute harm relative to others is small, right? So so I think for someone who's got no other options, for whatever reason, it's still obviously far better to have them suppressed. But but no, I, I think if there are readily available alternatives that are acceptable to the patient and accessible, I, I, I think it's probably fair to say it's uh, be a, uh, a better place to start. But, you know, it's it's the problem with observational studies using a medication as the exposure because you, you're never really fully able to to address some of the confounding by indication or or other factors that are involved. Okay, um, Paul, you get the next sure. question. Well, I want to ask a really specific question for Victor, just because it's been in the news. Um, the FDA recently approved a drug for Alzheimer's. Um, is this a hot new thing we should all be rushing to, to try? Have you heard of any outcomes yet? Well, I was, I was snickering when Matt said, you know, it's an expensive drug that doesn't have good efficacy. So, we <laughs> didn't approve it. you know, because uh, the FDA in your time. You need an FDA time, director. Sorry. <laughs> they, they seem to change their rules to, to, to find a, a medicine that is going to break Medicare. If even a third of people with Alzheimer's disease choose to take it and has a equity lens that is as terrible as one can imagine at 58,000 a year with the added cost out of pocket that's going to be somewhere between 15 and 20,000 in a study that didn't initially show any efficacy in a number of different places. And then in a very specialized uh, analysis of high dose showed that it did seem to decrease the amyloid burden, but not having meaningful outputs. So most of us are scratching our head as to why this would have been approved and, and why agencies are supporting it, I think, is because it's, it's probably, Paul, like HIV in 1987, when somebody said, take five hands full of IZT and I might be able to right. you know, do something. That's probably the best analogy that I can think of for a disease like Alzheimer's disease, where it's basically, you know, a terrible, terrible outcome. And people are desperately seeking therapies. So I suspect I've already had calls that people want to do it. And um, yet I, I don't think it's the right thing for us to have done as a government. I doubt other large agencies like Europe and UK are going to approve this. Um, and it, it'll have a lot of downstream effects, I'm afraid. And yet we still don't have an approved COVID vaccine, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. Good, good, good point. Connie, back to you. Okay. So I'm going to maybe get back to Christine with another question. Um, this might be a too broad a question to ask, but the, uh, the polypharmacy that Dr. Flexner discussed and that uh, in a very elegantly outlined us all different kinds of ways that polypharmacy affects us. How do you measure or account for polypharmacy in all of the studies of frailty and progression of frailty? If you just stopped all those one-time drugs that Charlie talked about, would you see improvement in frailty and its progression? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, mean, I think polypharmacy likely contributes to the progression of frailty. Um, however, managing comorbidities probably helps decrease comorbidity or decrease this frailty. So I think there's a balance of trying to minimize disease progression treating diabetes, keeping hypertension under control that may help to decrease some progression of frailty, but at the same time, avoiding medications that may have additional neurotoxicity, for example, um, increase the risk of falls. Some of those criteria or some of those medications on the higher risk criteria list um, are probably at the greatest risk for progressing frailty. So I think it's a careful going through the medication list with each patient individually cutting back those medications that maybe aren't having added benefit. And there may be some trialing of what if we tried to decrease some of these medications to actually feel better. Um, I think the other issue with polypharmacy is that we oftentimes end up with a cycle of treating the side effects of other medicines rather than treating a new condition. And so if we can decrease some of them that maybe are were initially started more for treatment of side effects that might have added benefit as well. So not a clear answer. Um, I think it would be wonderful to have a study where we could actually try stopping medications. Um, in part, I think it's hard to convince patients to stop medications too. They feel like a lot of them are ones that they need to be on and it's hard to convince them that some of them are okay to stop. Charlie probably has more to expand on that though. I mean, I, I do, it's, maybe it's ironic that the pharmacologist would be advocating for non-pharmacologic interventions. But, you know, you think about things like inflammation, the best thing you can do for inflammation in any patient is to get them to stop smoking. And that's the one proven cause of the worst kind of pathologic inflammation there is. Um, and, you know, why on earth would we, would we, we be thinking about giving someone an IL-1 beta agonist if there's antagonist, if they're still smoking? That and, and uh, you know, I think regular exercise, there's a number of, of, uh, of studies showing the benefits of regular exercise on your state of, of pathologic inflammation. But um, in terms, of, in terms of, of polypharmacy, I do agree with Christine that um, in a patient with frailty, you really need to contextualize it and understand what's contributing to what. Um, undoubtedly, I think there are patients where um, their frailty is being made worse by uh, or even perhaps caused by uh, uh, drugs that they've been given. Um, but I, I, I think you can't. I think you have to try to individualize, personalize therapy there and, and, and assess the individual and see what they're taking and 
how it might be how it might be uh, making them worse. So um, I, I want to stick with Charlie. Sorry, everybody else. Uh, but um, question that, that has concerned me: I, I got burned recently with a patient uh, who had a blip, and I was notified by our astute uh, pharmacist that he had started uh, multivitamins. Uh, with, uh, with cations, um, and it, he hadn't been kind of informed about the need to separate that. It was, it, it, just comment on over the counter, uh, medications and the, the challenge that that might represent and just be alert. It's a big problem because, you know, we tell people not to take magnesium with integrase inhibitors, but no one ever imagines that their multivitamin contains enough magnesium to make the constant, to, to limit the absorption of their integrase inhibitor. So again, I, I treat multivitamins, multivitamins like I treat anything. I read the ingredients. Um, not all multi, multivitamins have a, 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 a lot of magnesium in them. Um, some have no magnesium, but those that do, you got to treat them like a magnesium supplement. Uh, you can't take them with your integrase inhibitors. Um, honestly, I mean, I, you know, you probably don't want to hear this from me, but, but, my father, who was a physician, used to say that multivitamins were made for one reason and for one reason only, and that was to make money for the people who make multivitamins. You know, most people who eat a normal diet don't need a multivitamin. Uh, you know, what, what's the point? Uh, there are just so few patients who actually need to take a multivitamin every day. So that that would be one way I would approach that. And I would add even those supplements, like the those zinc. There's a lot of zinc in those protein um, type of things that you take for exercise. That, that's to prevent COVID, Monica. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. I think our, our next question we're going to throw to Dr. Bruce, and maybe Charlie will have some comments about this as well. If a patient is stable on a very high dose oxycodone for pain and hasn't had any overdose or drug using or drug use or abuse issues, can you continue them on high-dose oxycodones? And uh, this is a very practical question since the person posing it is inheriting a patient who's been on 30 milligrams four times a day of oxycodone. What would be your advice? Well, I would say that's actually not high-dose, but it's just some of the things <laughs> I gotta wow, call. I think that would kill me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got a call about a guy on 800 milligrams of methadone once that made me very anxious. Um, oh my god! <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, a slight problem. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the things I worry about is sh- things that are dosed at those intervals. One, I worry about it behaviorally. If you're a heroin addict, you dose every six hours, and so if what we could be doing in the patient is reinforcing a something that's not a good behavior relative to history. Now, if the person doesn't have a substance use history, I also just worry about it because um, I, I found over time that some patients, and I still find this fascinating, and maybe Charlie can explain all the pharmacology, um, is that uh, we have a fair number of patients who actually start to have more pain as they're on these kind of shorter acting repeat dosing. And I, my preference would be in a patient like this to migrate this person to something that's longer acting. Um, so whether that's a fentanyl patch, whether that is actually moving them towards buprenorphine, which I like, I even like lower dose methadone, uh, dosed uh, a couple times a day. So there are a lot of options for this person. It's also, I think, really telling in the conversation that you have with the person. And so 
people who are very wedded to things, I also get a little bit anxious about. Um, sometimes you get wedded to it because you're in a lot of pain. This works. Don't mess with it. Sometimes you also uh, get wedded to things because of the secondary gain associated with them. So summary, I'd move them off. I'd find an alternative, but it will be a process. It doesn't happen fast. And that kind of answers one of the other questions about the use of buprenorphine. Is that a good first line uh, drug for uh, chronic or acute pain management? Uh, well, it has an indication. Suboxone does not have an indication for pain at all, right? But right. buprenorphine has been in, in use for anesthesia for a long time. Um, I would not use it for acute pain. Um, we do use it in chronic pain with people who have an opioid use disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, using buprenorphine, like using Suboxone to treat pain in a non-drug user is way off the reservation relative to what the FDA indication is for it. That being said, it certainly has a lower abuse or overdose risk than oxycodone does or methanol. Great. Okay, Paul, you get the next one. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Christine, uh, somebody mentioned, uh, exercise and I know that you have done some, some great work, uh, with exercise in, in HIV, uh, uh, populations. Do you want to talk about, uh, what, what strategy you have to try to get a couch potato back up on his or her feet? Yeah. Um, that's a challenge I think in everyone, uh, is getting the couch potato motivated. I mean, I think that the main thing is baby steps. It's trying to get behaviors that people can stick with all the time, not going overboard and, and doing fad diets or um, the newest, greatest exercise move and buying their Peloton if they're not ready to commit to it. So I think it's um, starting with small behaviors every day that can become a habit. Uh, we actually published a couple of years ago an exercise prescription specific to people with HIV and AIDS. Um, and there's a PDF that providers can print off and it has some tips for starting with five minutes a day, um, starting with 5,000 steps a day, kind of having a goal and then readdressing it with your patients every week or every two weeks, trying to do frequent check-ins and have them slowly increase those behaviors over time to try to get to that goal of 30 minutes, five or seven days a week as possible. Some of the newer recommendations have increased our exercise goals for um, how much moderate and vigorous intensity exercise are recommended. So I think the more exercise, the better. And then they also, um, some of the more recent guidelines, the World Health Organization and the CDC have really emphasized the decrease in sedentary time, which I think became a huge issue during COVID as everyone is stuck at home. So little behaviors, um, reminding people it doesn't have to be 30 minutes in a row. It can be 10 minutes here, 10 minutes there little short walks throughout the day, especially if they're not in very good shape, uh, going out for a 20 minute walk can be kind of daunting. So starting with those small behaviors and then dr- gradually increasing. There is some data in the cardiovascular literature that writing a prescription for patients can help. So if you actually prescribe them exercise, there's a little bit more uh, emphasis that patients might put on that than if you just tell them you should really exercise. So um, that may have a little bit um, better take with people in terms of, of following we would recommendations. Medicalize that. 
of course, we would cancel <laughs> yes. on that in cardiology. Make it into a prescription. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, make it into it a seem... schedule. Make it into a schedule two drug, and then exactly. they might be even more likely. <laughs> yeah. Let me just. Uh, yes, you have to come in to get your prescription once a month for right, exercise, right, or else we won't right. give it to you. So, and you have to walk <laughs> from the parking garage. <laughs> yes, the far end of the parking garage. You right. have to take the stairs too. So, yep. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, those I are some, bring, some uh, minor things. <laughs> I just want to uh, make sure that Christine uh, thinks to add that uh, p- the link to that PDF uh, in the program for today so that all the audience can get access to it. Thanks. Great. Yeah, sure. Thank you. I want to bring Sue and Steve and Monica back into this dis- next question because I think you all have may have a perspective on it. Are there any special recommendations for screening transgender patients in your clinics? And uh, particularly if they're on estrogens, do you do something different with breast cancer screening or any of the other screening things that you look at? Yeah, I'll, I'll start. You know. <laughs> yeah, we'll let the man start and then we'll let the women weigh in. <laughs> well, I, I will talk. The man now. will start and the women will give the correct answer. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, True. So I, I wanted to mention that the IDSA guidelines do have a little section now on transgender care. So that's that's one resource. But, uh, you know, um, I've actually uh, used the UCSF site, uh, TransCare. It's just a incredibly detailed site on transgender care. And there's specific recommendations for for different types of screens, including for screening for breast cancer and and. Uh, you know, it involves not only age, but also kind of duration of exposure to, to hormone therapy. So I would, frankly, if, if you want more resources, I would look at that site. I'm sure other places have sites, but I've used the UCSF site. Monica, maybe you can I mean, put, the link, put the link to that in uh, yeah, your response. I will. Yeah, because this is a trans uh, trans effort um, with our uh, uh, behavioralists and also our MDs at Ward 86 to put together these trans guidelines. So um, I think they are really helpful. We absolutely do age-appropriate screening as if, I mean, estrogen will create a need for um, uh, mammography. Also, we also screen in terms of osteoporosis, osteopenia, osteoporosis earlier. So if you look at the bone guidelines by IDSA, uh, we uh, there's kind of post-menopausal women or men over 50, but um, anyone on trans on estrogen, we, we just start screening after 50. And we now have a DEXA um, a screener actually at our hospital, which is really nice. Uh, we used to have to send them far away. And, um, and then the only other thing is clots um, and uh, being really... Um, you know, we did some things this year, like not give Johnson and Johnson, just sort of vaccine, COVID vaccine with people and for people who are on um, extra physiologic dose of uh, endogenous hormones um, and because of the concerns for clot. So there were some, those are the three places where we change our recommendations for screening. Sue, did you do anything differently? Actually, I um, agree with Steve and do exactly what he suggested, I think it's maybe useful for the audience to know a lot of this is kind of a data-free zone. We know we don't have um, uh, good data on any of it. The advice is very sound, but just aware of that. And I think to um, the other consideration that Monica was talking about, about the increased uh, thrombotic risk, is a also a perfect area where 
smoking sensation becomes an increasing, you know, a very important conversation. And so I've actually tried to almost sort of like bribe some of our transgender patients that want more estrogen. It's like, well, you have to quit smoking, otherwise it makes me too nervous. <laughs> the, the, the final thing that I've always sort of enjoyed is um, for uh, people on uh, gender affirming therapy that are starting estrogen and finally get to the point where they need to have a mammogram and they are just like so happy about it. And, you know, all of us women that have had mammograms know how miserable it is. And it's just sweet to see someone who's thrilled that they can get one. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, Paul, we have about five minutes left. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, so this is a question that came in earlier uh, about uh, urine uh, drug screening. Um, and we heard that there are, um, you know, some drugs that aren't detected. And, and so could you kind of very quickly uh, summarize that again? Urine drug screening, uh, oxybuprenorphine, uh, fentanyl are not picked up. How, how, do, how does one order the right um, screening test? Uh? So the most important thing is to talk to your lab, right? So the lab is going to guide you on what you should order. So um, the point I was trying to make is that like buprenorphine as a synthetic opioid is tested differently in an immunoassay, the little kind of rapid test that you do, and it's going to look different than an opiate like heroin, morphine. So the, the key thing is not so much to memorize all of the various combinations, all the things that can cause a false positive or false negative. It's really important to talk to your lab this is what I want to find. What's the test that I use? And then when you get a result, you're not sure what it is. Make sure, like, why did my patient light up for this? What does it mean? Again, talk, talk to the toxicology people in your lab. Um, that's the most important thing. Okay, thank you. Um, so this may turn out to be the last question because I'm going to ask several people to comment on it because it touches on all of your talks and uh, Monica and Sue. So, um, can you comment on your recommendations, Steve, for healthy lifestyle in people living with HIV and how you implement those in your practice? So every one of you have said something about healthy lifestyle issues in your talk. How do you implement those in clinical practice and what are the most important ones? Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, part of, uh, I think the first step is actually including it in your visit. Um, you know, uh, sometimes we're kind of focused on electronic record documentation and things like that and trying to make sure people are up to date on immunizations and everything else that by the time the visit's over, you've hardly even had a conversation. So I, I, I think, you know, the, uh, it's become a dominant discussion, I think, because of the prevalence of weight gain now in our uh, population, um, including just for other reasons, but also the concern about ART and weight gain. So there are some, you know, resources. CDC has some resources on, on healthy living and HIV. Um, you know, for people where obesity has been an issue, we have, you know, gotten nutritionists involved. That's, that's another approach and so on. But, uh, you know, I think a discussion of, of nutrition, exercise, uh, and then focusing on some of the other healthy living things, tobacco cessation, limitation of alcohol and so on. Um, I might actually phone a friend and ask Christine because I think she's kind of an expert in this area as well. So he just threw it to you, Christine. So you get to talk. 
Well, his office is right next to mine, so he can just come ask me when he needs to. But um, I mean, I think I've gotten in the habit of asking people kind of, are you still smoking? How much are you exercising? And just asking that, not even spending very long on it. But I've noticed that a lot of patients, I think, at least think about it. And then the next time they come see me, maybe it's um, not their next visit, but their next visit um, times three, you know, in, in a, a year or two when they come back and they've had several visits, but asking them they, each time, they're really excited when they come, come back and say, Hey, I've been exercising three times a week for the last month. And so even, I think it's similar to smoking where when you ask them about it and they at least think about it and that process starts going and they're considering maybe I should start. Um, and then they make some decisions on their own, which is much more likely to stick. So I think simple questions, just kind of what are you doing for this and are you exercising, uh, at least starts that conversation so patients think about it and know that you're interested. Matt, critical for cardiologists, how yeah. do you get people to stop smoking and exercise? Smoking is very difficult, um, I think, for a number of reasons, right? Um, I, I think, But I think for stopping smoking, but also for improving lifestyle in general, at least for me, my strategy is complete transparency always and ensuring like ensuring there's no potential for self blame or, or blame in any way, which, which I actually think is really important because as soon as they start blaming themselves, then they start becoming reluctant to bring up anything because they're embarrassed about bringing up any, um, suboptimal lifestyle related factors. And then we don't have the opportunity to address it. Um, one thing I would say, this probably applies less for the smoking, but, but, um, you know, in terms of carrots and sticks, sometimes I'll use not not really the threat of medication per se as a stick, but but just to say there are a few things we know. We know if your blood pressure increases by 10 to 20, if your weight increases by 10 to 20 pounds, your blood pressure on average is probably going to increase by five millimeters mercury or more. If it keeps going at this level, you will, you know, you'll you'll need medication for it or you'll need more. Likewise, with certain dietary factors, what how, what, um, what changes in diet can do to lipids and what they, how they may be able, how, you know, uh, initiating a, a more optimal lifestyle and diet pattern may help avert the need for medication, you know, for statins, for instance, in the near term or medium term. I found that to be reasonably effective, but again, this is all, this is all anecdotal. And I think, I think smoking cessation honestly blows all of those out of the water in terms of importance. And that's something that I, I, I still struggle with a lot with my patients. Well, Sue, I think you get the last word. Any special tricks on healthy lifestyle advice for patients? Um, I don't have any magic tricks, no. I, But I do totally agree with Christine that just talking about it and even officially recommending it. I kind of like the idea of writing prescriptions. Remember when we used to write prescriptions on a piece of paper and then you could write them for, you know, um, boyfriend has to do the washing up more or, you know, something. <laughs> and uh, now it's, with, I don't, sure you can't do that in Epic, but um, uh, I think that there are, there is some evidence, I think, from at least the smoking literature that when, you know, a physician says to a person, you know, you, I think you really need to stop smoking. I strongly recommend that you do. Uh, that can sometimes make a difference. And so I do tend to try to make as much use of that as I can, you know, that from from a point of view of how much we care about somebody, you know, I really want you to do X, Y, Z, whatever it is. 
I'll stop doing something. Great. So, Paul, I think it's uh, time for us to wrap it up. I know there were still some questions left in our Q&A that we didn't get to in our effort to bring everyone into the discussion. So we will try to get those to the respective speakers and ask them to address them uh, in writing or post them on our, our IAS USA website as Q&A.